0: Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word because we know that your word has the power to change us. It convicts us, it shows us right and wrong, and it shows our desperate need for you. So we pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish that end in our lives, that it would make us more obedient to you, more submissive to your lordship in our lives that you may be glorified as we pursue your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We saw last week that one of the most important things that any Christian can understand is the importance of abiding in Christ, that is, not leaving his side, not Abandoning him, not losing faith in him, not being drawn away from trusting in him completely. And as I said last week, it might be said that the only thing more important than understanding what it means to abide is to actually do it. So what does it look like for us to abide in Christ? What does it it look like for the Christian believer to abide in Christ? Well, we saw that the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John gave us great insight into that answer. It means to bear fruit, specifically the fruit of obedience. Jesus says, obey my commands. The fruit of repentance as well, both of which are driven by the fruit of the Spirit and, of course, the fruit of of righteousness, which was really the subject that we covered last week. One of the great blessings, if you will, of living in the midst of a culture that is abandoning Christianity, abandoning and walking away from Christian values, is that it becomes easier and easier. The further and further away the culture gets, it becomes easier and easier to tell the difference between what is cultural Christianity and the real deal. That is something that you do because this is just what everybody does, you know. People don't do this this certain act because, well, it was founded on biblical principles. That's cultural Christianity. But saying Jesus says not to do this or to do this, or the Bible says not to do this or or to do this and doing it, that's the real deal. And so one of the great blessings of living in the midst of a culture like ours is it's easy It becomes easier to tell the difference between what's fake and what's real. This past week, there was a video that went viral on Buzzfeed titled, I'm a Christian, but I'm not, dot, dot, dot. You could have just taken out those dots, honestly. And I don't mean that sarcastically. The people in this video would sort of fill in the blank at the end of this phrase, I'm a Christian, but I'm not. And some of the responses that these people gave included, I'm not homophobic. I'm definitely not perfect. I'm not closed-minded. I'm not uneducated. I'm not unaccepting. I'm not judgmental. I'm not ignorant. And so on and so forth. And while it's obviously not my place, because I don't know these people. I don't know a thing about these people, other than what I've seen in the video. So it's obviously not my place to say whether or not these are legitimate Christians. There is an implication behind these statements that's very Important, And that is that they are unlike another group of Christians who are all of these things. Homophobic, judgmental, self-righteous, narrow-minded, ignorant, and so on and so forth. Can you guys imagine a video being put on, on BuzzFeed where somebody said, I'm a Muslim, but I'm not a terrorist. Or I'm a Muslim, but I don't believe in slaughtering infidels. There would be absolute outrage if a video like that went on the internet. Why? Because of the same implication. They're implying that other Muslims are terrorists and do believe in slaughtering infidels. And so the next segment of this video starts with a text, What Are You? First the negative, then the positive. To which these people respond that they are practicing homosexuals, feminists, not afraid to talk about sex, love to drink wine, And so on and so forth. At this point, you have to realize that this whole video is a complete sham. It has an agenda behind it. How can we tell? Because 33% of these people in the video are practicing homosexuals, and yet less than 5% of the population is homosexual. That's more than 10 times. It's it's more than 10 times the national average. And half of these people in the video uh, self-identify as feminists when the actual percentage of Americans who truly identify as feminists is about 18%, according to recent studies. So I was initially shocked when I I saw this video. And I was shocked at the number of self-professing Christians who not only liked this video, but shared it through social media. It reveals within those who applauded this video a complete misunderstanding of what Christianity is truly about. And I fear that for many it may indicate a complete rejection of what Christianity is about. That's what I fear. Because the attitude communicated by these people was basically, I'm a Christian, but I'm just as worldly as anybody else you've ever met. So there is no evidence, at least not in this video, that these people are even slightly concerned with the reality of sin in their lives. Instead, they present their sin as if it were compatible with Christianity, as if it were compatible with following Jesus, as if it's compatible with having faith in Christ. Perish the thought. To the contrary, the true Christian can never be at peace with their sin. It will be a reality throughout our lives, but we can never be at peace with it because it's impossible to walk in the darkness and yet simultaneously remain at peace with God who is light and in whom there is no darkness. 1 John 1, verse 5. And this, this whole thing actually reminds me of a cartoon that I once saw in which a child asks his father, Dad... What's a Christian? Pretty good question. And the father responds, A Christian is a person who loves and obeys God. He loves his friends and neighbors and even his enemies. He prays often, is gentle, kind, holy, and more interested in going to heaven than in earthly riches. That son is a Christian. Pretty good answer, right? We couldn't really argue with that. And so the boy thinks about it for a minute, and he says back to the father, Have I ever seen one? The Christian life is about abiding in Christ and walking in obedience to him, but it's also about learning to minimize our failure to walk in perfect obedience to him. Has he ever seen somebody who does this perfectly? Of course not. Only Jesus did these things perfectly. But only the enemy of God would present real Christianity as something that is perfectly fine, perfectly compatible with complacency towards sin. Only the enemy of God would present Christianity that way. And if you think that Christianity just boils down to being nice to other people and doing good things and, you know, not offending anybody. First of all, I guess we could say it's it's such a shame that all these martyrs, countless martyrs have given their lives throughout history because they took a stand for personal righteousness and and against sin uh, rather than taking, you know, just the easy road and not offending anybody. If if it's true that that's what Christianity boils down to, then those people gave their lives for nothing. It's absolutely false, though. That is not what Christianity boils down to. No, anyone who believes that Christianity just boils down to being nice to others, doing good things, not offending anybody, they reveal that they have really no understanding, no real understanding of what Christianity is all about. Last week we saw in chapter 2, verse 29, John told us that a surefire trait of a true Christian is that they practice righteousness. They practice righteousness. Given the assurance that's gained by growing in and practicing righteousness more and more in our lives, the true Christian can anticipate the day that Christ returns knowing that they will not need to feel any sense of shame when Christ returns. Romans 8.1, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our passage today is one of those passages in which we have to remember that while uh, chapter and verse separations are, are helpful, uh, they are not actually part of the inspired and inerrant text. Uh, John's going to continue his train of thought uh, so last week's was really kind of a, a transitional uh, passage to the section that we're entering into today, which flows naturally from everything that John has already established. And so John continues with this line of thought, writing in the first two verses of John, 1 John chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Verse 1 here truly has to be considered one of the greatest, one of the most awe. Inspiring verses in in all of Scripture. The word that that gets translated in, in the uh, in the ESV here as see uh, means more than just seeing. It, it does mean seeing, like with your eyes. Uh, in other translations, it's translated as behold, which I think is um, probably a better translation. It's a stronger word uh, than just. See. Uh, Strong's Greek Dictionary defines this first and uh, foremost as to see with the eyes, granted, but the second definition is to see with the mind. So it means to observe something closely, to observe it carefully, to study it, and study it, and study it, and become intimately familiar and acquainted with the thing that you are beholding. So in one sense, it's, it's, it means seeing with the eyes. It's the word that Pilate used when he said of Jesus to the Jews, Behold your king. In other words, see him with your eyes. And yet, when this word precedes a doctrinal statement or a doctrinal truth, it's intended in a different sense. Its purpose is to wake us up. It's like, hey, check this out. It's to to awaken our our drowsy, our our tired, maybe even our, our complacent minds to see something that is absolutely amazing, something that is extraordinary, and to devote every bit of our attention to it in order that we may be stricken with awe, wonder, amazement, rejoicing, delight, and comfort. So... To what doctrinal truth are we to turn every bit of our attention? Not only the fact that God has loved the rebels, the sinners, the unlovable people that we rightfully deserve to be in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. That fact is in itself astounding, as it should seem impossible that a holy and perfectly just God would love us would love us so much that he would redeem for himself a group of depraved sinners who deserve nothing but hell. And not only that he loves us, but John says, behold the kind of love. He's saying, behold the kind of love that the Father has given to us. How amazing, how wonderful, how marvelous that God the Father would give us the very same kind of love that He had and has for all of eternity, that He's had for all of eternity for the Lord Jesus Christ, His only Son, through whom, by whom, and for whom all things have been made and are held together today. How seemingly impossible, how glorious that God, a holy God, would adopt us as orphans when we were... His enemies, by both nature and choice, bringing us into His family as if we were His own Son, His own flesh and blood, giving us a closer intimacy than even the angels in heaven have. John's saying, behold this. Study it. Know it. What comfort this truth should give us that the same God who can't look upon evil, should look upon us. And that he should be so for us, whom he has loved and redeemed, that he should promise that nothing, nothing, nothing in all of creation could separate us from his love. What trial is there that could stop that love? What difficulty can prevent God's purposes from being accomplished in our lives? None. This is really unthinkable. When you you think about it, it's like you can't get your mind completely around it. Given this kind of unconditional, glorious, eternal, infinite love with which God has loved us, how could we not be content, whatever our portion may be? If we're children of God, how could any passing thing on earth Become a greater treasure to us than being in his grip, in his service, in his protection, in his providential care, or in his presence. So John's saying, behold this kind of love. It's a unique kind of love. It's amazing. He's saying, think about it. Meditate on it. Contemplate it. Study it. Dwell on this glorious truth of how incredible the Father's love is for His people that He would call us children. Consider it. Study it until you know it. Adore the nature of his love for us. It's a love that is entirely foreign to normal human experience. It's unlike any other love we've ever seen or known or tried to wrap our minds around because it's free and it's uninfluenced by anything outside of God himself. He's unmovable. The foundation and the purpose for this love is entirely within God. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to Redeem for himself a people. It's entirely within him. It's his prerogative. It's a love that seeks to, sacri- to sacrificially benefit a people who are entirely undeserving of it. It's incomparable. There's nothing on earth that compares to the glorious and inexplicably great nature of his love for us. It's not a love that only reflects his pity and compassion toward us. It is that, but it's more. It's also a love that reflects complete delight in us. Complete delight in us. Think about that for a minute. He delights in us, even though we're sinners, even though we fall short, even though we've made the same mistakes, we've fallen into the same sins over and over and over again, yet he still Delights in us. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says this The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Does he know about your shortcomings? Of course. Does he know about your sins? Of course. Does he know about how you sometimes struggle? To be faithful, of course He does. And yet this is the kind of love that God has for His children. He rejoices with gladness. He exalts over us with loud singing. Kind of like Lion King, you know, when, when they present the Lion King and you know everybody starts singing a song. That's what God does with us. With us. And if you have a good idea of how undeserving you are of God's love, you find this absolutely amazing, that he would exult over us with singing. Who is this us, though? Who's, your, who's John referring to? Who is us? Maybe we should back up a step. Because a lot of people in our day and age would say that everyone is a child of God. This is an idea that has probably been around a long time, but most recently it really took root in the hippie movement where they believed that everybody was just a, a child of God. But this is just another instance of an ideology or a philosophy that finds its roots in secular humanist thinking. It has no basis whatsoever in Scripture. God's people are His children. Those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the children of God. The us referred to here is a personal pronoun. And the way to understand or to figure out whom a personal pronoun refers to is to trace it back to the closest personal noun. And so in this case, we go back just a verse to chapter 2, verse 29, which reveals very clearly who us is. It's those who are born again, those who have been regenerated, and therefore they give evidence of the fact that they have been regenerated by practicing righteousness. The person who walks in accordance with the will of the Father and the commands of Christ, bearing the moral image of God. That's who John is referring to in this context. That's who is a child of God. That's who's been adopted into the family of God. Not because they were good. That's not how you get adopted into the family of God. You don't get adopted in there because you're good. But by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is a love that is inconceivable and unfathomable to those who are not children of God, to the world. It's a love that can't be articulated completely in human terms, not sufficiently anyway. And that's why the world doesn't understand how blessed it is to be a child of God, because they have rejected him. And so they don't know anything about this love. They've never experienced it. And I think it goes without saying that the world's definition of love is not agape love. Worldly love is not a self-sacrificial love. It's a self-serving love. It's a worldly love that celebrates sin and false gods and idols such as the idol of self-esteem, which is one of our culture's favorite gods. This agape love with which God loves his children is a love which, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is a love that, quite frankly, the world absolutely hates because they don't understand it, because they've rejected it. Christians are designed. God has created Christians to be different from non-Christians, to be different from the world. Is that news to anybody, by the way? That we're supposed to be different? We're supposed to have different values and everything, different ways of acting, different ways of thinking. It shouldn't be news to anyone, and yet the majority of self-professing Christians in our day and age, in our culture, are relatively indistinguishable from the world. The love of God has been bestowed upon us, and that love changes us. The love of God changes us. It transforms us so that we are no longer like the world. We no longer value the things that the world values. It renders us what the New Testament authors referred to as aliens in this world, as strangers in this world, as exiles. In this world, who are looking for a better land? The point of all this is that as Christians, as children of God, we can live in hope, in anticipation of the day that Jesus returns, and He will return. He is coming back, having declared us judicially righteous. That's called justification. God is now making His children practically righteous through the process of sanctification and he'll complete that righteousness that he has begun that work of creating us to bear his moral image will be completed to perfect righteousness in glorification justification is judicial righteousness sanctification is practical righteousness glorification is complete righteousness We anticipate and we eagerly await the day that we enter into the gates of heaven, not only because we'll enter into the eternal presence of our Lord Jesus, but also because on that day, His work is going to be completed. We're going to become like Him. Verse 1 here tells us who we are. We are children of God. Verse 2 tells us what we are becoming. And that is moral reflections of the character of God. Moral reflections of the character of God. And yet, John tells us, tells us that what will be has not yet appeared. What will we be will be perfect moral reflections of the character of Christ. And as Difficult to say the very least. It's difficult for most of us to imagine something like that. All we know is that it's going to happen. That we will be changed in a moment into His likeness. When will it happen? When, when we see Him as He is, John says. When we see Him as He is. The flesh nature. The habits that we've carried through life with us. That we've waged war against. That we've struggled over and over and over with will finally be lifted and removed from our shoulders. The war against the tendencies and the desires of the flesh will be over. We don't exactly know how this happens or or maybe I should say uh, what it looks like exactly like if you were watching, if you were filming it. What would it look like when somebody stands in front of God and all of a sudden our flesh nature is just gone? All we know is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And when will this promise be fulfilled? in its entirety? When will the work of God in us be completed? When we finally see Him. We'll be made perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, not only in a judicial sense, that is justification, where we're declared righteous by faith in Christ, taking His righteousness imputed to us and transferring our sin to Him on the cross, so we'll not only be made perfect and holy in this judicial sense, but we will be made practically holy in a practical sense. And it's almost impossible for us to, to fathom. How, how many of you guys have, have spent even one second of your life trying to imagine what heaven's going to be like? I mean, we, we've all done that, right? And, and, and to imagine that we would not even have the slightest inclination towards sin. How many of you guys are able to wrap your minds around that? It's like, what do I do with that? That seems impossible. That's like, you may as well ask me to draw a square circle. You know, it's impossible, or a a three-sided rectangle. Yeah. You know, we have moments in which we experience righteousness in a practical sense. That's what John told us in in the previous verse. That's what he told us at the end of chapter 2. Those who practice righteousness do so because they've been born again. So it's a reality. We, We do it sometimes, but we do it so imperfectly. We do it so inconsistently that it's impossible to imagine doing it consistently and perfectly. When we do it, it's usually with great effort. And so to imagine doing it perfectly and, and eternally, it, it's, it's more than our minds can be wrapped around. It's impossible to imagine doing it consistently and perfectly. Paul likened it to seeing in a mirror dimly. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, he said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So it's like looking in a, in a mirror that's really, really dim, and just seeing like a slight shadow, a slight outline That's what Paul likens it to. But this is our hope. And this is our promise that He will complete the work that He has begun in His people. This is our hope. He has promised that He will do this. And we'll hold on to this promise, this hope. And this is where the text gives us something of a test. Remember, John wants us to have Assurance, And the best way to have assurance is to examine ourselves. How do we know if we're children of God? How do we know that we can anticipate with joy the day that Christ returns rather than anticipating it with fear? How do we know if He began a good work in us? How do we know if we're living in light of the hope of heaven? The answer is actually remarkably simple. The child of God knows that they're a child of God because they're preparing to stand before him. They're preparing to enter into his presence and they're not going to wait until heaven. They're not just living it up now knowing that you know one day I'll walk through the doors but I'll worry about that when I get there. They're preparing now. That's what John means when he continues writing in verse 3 here. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes, hopes in accordance with what we've just covered, purifies himself, the individual person, as he, as Christ, is pure. Christ in us, the hope, the only hope of glory. When our hope is rightly fixed, On Christ, it will produce a drastic transformation in us because we will want to be like Him right now. It's not something that we're going to put off because right now it is the most important thing to love Him and to be like Him. We know that we're going to be made holy and righteous as he is holy and righteous when we see him. But the true Christian isn't going to wait until heaven to start making progress toward that end. Going back to the very purpose that this letter was written. You always want to read in context and understand things in the context why the letter was written. Going back, there was a group of false teachers who had infiltrated the church. Gnostics who taught that the body, because the body was material, physical, that the body was evil and could not be made good. That is, it could not be purified. And one of the things that many of them would do in response to embracing this philosophy is live it out. They would live out the logical end of this philosophy. They would engage freely in the desires of the flesh. can't be purified, so you may as well just Go with the desires of the flesh and so they would insult and they would mock those who refused to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh accusing those who desired to purify themselves accusing those who desired to live a life of purity as legalists and morons who just didn't know any better And I think we all know that it's not an exaggeration to say that the modern church still sees this going on all over the place. No, the church in our day is not filled with Gnosticism. But many who claim to be in Christ are quick to speak against anyone or any teaching that would restrict or judge or condemn carnal, worldly thinking and living. Was that not the point of this BuzzFeed video? It's as if to say, how dare a Christian promote moral purity? They're not perfect. That's right. Isn't it? Anybody in here perfect? In a practical sense. Judicially? Practically. No. We're not perfect. And we can't deny that. But Christianity is not about being perfect in a practical sense as much as it's about admitting that we're not perfect but not using that as an opportunity for the flesh not using that as an excuse to become complacent or apathetic regarding our sin in John's own words anyone and everyone who has their hope fixed on Christ purifies himself as he as Christ is pure having been justified by the grace of god we became his workmanship Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 we became his workmanship created for good works in Christ which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in we are his workmanship and the fact that we are his workmanship is made evident by the fact that we change it's made evident by the fact that we're growing in the likeness of Christ. Do we want to be legalistic about this? Of course not. But do we want to be pure? Do we want to be purified? And should we expect to see the desire for and the growth in moral purity in ourselves and in anyone else who claims to be a Christian? Should we see that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I want us to notice that the word purifies here is written in the present tense. And that it's not imperative. It's not a command. He's not saying, purify yourselves. James does. But John's not. Rather, it's just kind of an assumption that he makes. That you would already be doing this if you're a Christian. In other words, John isn't saying do this. Rather, he's saying that if you're truly in Christ, you're doing this. Again, in the present tense. It indicates a continuous action. It's something that you should have already been doing. And it's something that if you're in Christ, you're doing right now. You're in the process of it right now. And it's something that you should continue doing into the future. And so for that reason, we could accurately translate this verse as saying, everyone who has this hope fixed on him is purifying Himself, just as he, just as Christ, is pure. And this is what theologians and and Christian thinkers would call progressive sanctification. The whole idea of that is that we are growing. We're making progress. We're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And it's entirely possible that somebody would totally misunderstand this, by the way, And think that John is saying that we're capable of purifying ourselves on our own. So the contrary, our our regeneration is entirely God's work, but the work of sanctification is a work that's driven by God's indwelling presence in the Christian and requires the participation of the individual Christian. That's why Paul said to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, it sounds like this is something that they can do on their own, right? He's saying there's an intentional effort, a participation that's required of the individual Christian in becoming sanctified. How do we do this? Do we do this on our own? No, Paul says, for it is God who works in you. That word for could also be translated as because. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's from Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. In other words, if God is working in you, the Christian has a participatory role. It's a cooperation between the individual and God. This isn't how we're justified. This isn't how regeneration happens. This is how we're sanctified. And there are some who take that truth and then use it to support the idea that the true Christian can go through their whole life with this complacent attitude towards sin, never growing in personal holiness, never making any progress because it's something that they've just refused to cooperate with. It's something they've refused to participate in. That is grow, not growing, refusing to grow in the likeness of Christ. And so the question, I guess, has to be asked, just so there's no misunderstanding here, what does God do with the true Christian, the true child of God who refuses to participate in progressive sanctification in the process of becoming more and more like Christ and let's be honest every single one of us would be resistant to this whole process we'd be resistant to participating fully cooperating with God's efforts to make us holy as he is holy it's a struggle for every single one of us and that's why we still sin sometimes we even do it when we know better we still sin, but we have to understand that God doesn't just redeem us, regenerate us, and, and just leave us on our own. He doesn't just abandon us to our ungodly and sinful, carnal, fleshly desires. He isn't a father who's distant and ambivalent or apathetic about our conformity to the purposes that he has for his children. He's a father He is a father who is actively involved in spurring his children on to greater and greater obedience. And this is where we start reading Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. We read, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. That's what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 6. And he continues, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, in which all have participated, there's that word, all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to to the Father of spirits, and live. Verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, but God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems rather painful, seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There it is, the fruit of righteousness. And now the conclusion that the author of Hebrews gives us, in light of the fact that God is disciplining His children in order that we may participate in this progressive sanctification, in order that we may become more and more like Christ. How then shall we live? As Francis Schaeffer may have asked. He wrote a famous book called How Then Shall We Live? The answer is in the next three verses, starting at verse 12. Therefore, in other words, in light of this truth that God is disciplining His children, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This verse tells us there are two things that we as Christians who are participating and being disciplined if we refuse to participate, two things that we have to strive for in light of this truth that God is working in us to accomplish his purposes of making us more and more like Christ. Number one, that we strive for peace with everyone. And number two, that we strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What's the verb there? What are we supposed to do? Strive. Strive. That's the key word. It's not that we'll be perfectly sinless in this life. We won't be. But are we striving? Are we striving? Are we putting forth an effort? Are we even trying? Are we making every attempt within us? to purify ourselves as Christ is pure, participating in the work of sanctification by surrendering more and more and more of ourselves, our desires, our our will, our hearts in obedience to Christ. See, real practical righteousness and holiness will be one of the great rewar- rewards that we'll receive in heaven. We won't have the temptations that we have had in on, in this life, on this earth. And yet those who would promote complacency in regard to sin would regard this type of real practical righteousness and holiness where the desires are just completely taken away from you. The ability to, to sin is completely taken away from you. Those who promote complacency towards sin would see this as inhibiting as and, and as restricting upon their personal freedoms rather than seeing it as freeing them from the things that restrict us in becoming more like Christ. You get that? The same thing that's going to free us from temptation, they would view as binding. We view sin as binding, they would view that freedom as binding. The true Christian must therefore, as the author of Hebrews writes, verses 1 and, 12, uh, 1 and 2, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is for the joy that, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The idea here is that running the race well, that is uh, part of living the Christian life well, abiding in Christ well, means laying aside our sin. It means trying with everything within us, striving to break free of it, striving to get away from it, stop doing it. The idea of purifying ourselves without laying aside our sin is as ridiculous as a person you know, rolling around in a, in a bunch of mud with a bar of soap trying to clean themselves up, off while they're still rolling around in the mud. Is that going to work? Is that ever going to work? No, it sounds like something you'd see in a comedy routine because it's absolutely ridiculous. So is the idea of trying to purify yourself without laying aside the sin that has hindered and entangled us. The question that we have to ask ourselves is pretty simple and straightforward. Do you see the idea of becoming perfectly righteous and holy as Christ is righteous and holy as something that would be restricting on your personal freedoms or something that would be freeing you from the things that restrict you? Would the inability to sin be a burden or would it free you from your burdens? The way that we answer this question reveals so much about what we truly desire and where we stand with God because the unbeliever will consider the inability to sin to be restricting. But the true Christian will hate their sin and will be striving to purify themselves as Christ is pure. And they'll see freedom from sin, losing the ability to sin as the greatest of blessings. As John MacArthur comments, he says, quote, as Christians fix their hope on their absolutely holy Savior and Lord and yearn to be both with Him and fully like Him in the future, their lives will be positively affected toward righteousness in the present. The things that we have our minds set on for the future affect how we live in the present. That's true in everything. If you you want to do something in the future, if you want to run a marathon next year, let's say, you'll be preparing in the present. The more you keep your hope fixed on Christ and seeing Him in the future, the more it'll change what you're doing and what you desire in the present. So is your life being affected toward righteousness in the present? And do you want it to be? Are you striving to grow in personal holiness? Friends, we have to constantly, constantly fix our hope on Christ. We've been promised that if God has begun a work in us, He will complete it. He will perfect it. Our lives are meant to be spent preparing for glory, which involves our growth in obedience to the will of God and to the commands of Christ. It means full surrender. In in the video that we we just saw before the the sermon, it means getting off the chair and just giving it to Jesus. We don't know what it will be like when the work of God is perfected in us, but we do know whom we will be like. This great hope starts with God's unfathomable love for us being bestowed to us, and it ends with us becoming holy. For He has promised, you shall be holy, for He is holy. So let's tie this all together. The end of chapter 2 revealed that those who practice righteousness do so because they've been born of God. How do we learn to practice righteousness? By laying aside our sin, by purifying ourselves, keeping our hope fixed on Christ, abiding in Him, and thus gradually becoming more and more like him as we rid ourselves of the sins that entangle us through this process of sanctification. It is okay for us as Christians to know and to confess that we are imperfect, because we are. But it's not okay for us to refuse to strive for growth in Christ's likeness. Friends, this life is preparation for a glorious eternity in the presence of Christ. Start preparing now. He is our reward in the future and now. So count the cost. He's worth it. As his children in this life, yes, we sin. Yes, we fall short. But we must learn to hate our sin and to continue to confess our sin. We must continue confessing our sin, agreeing with God's word in regard to what is morally good and morally evil. And we must continue to abide in Christ, striving to lay aside the sin which frustrates us, which entangles us, keeping our eyes instead and our hope Fixed on Christ. Eagerly, eagerly and joyfully anticipating the day when we'll see him as he is. Knowing that on that day he will complete his work in us. He who began a good work in us will complete it when we stand before him. But don't use that as an excuse to be complacent towards sin now. Purify yourselves. We have to purify ourselves as He's pure. He's our treasure. So let's live for Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love. It is wonderful and it is marvelous and it is unfathomable to think that You would love us And that you would send your only Son to bear your wrath against our sin. And that you would give us his righteousness. Thank you for that amazing gift of salvation. Thank you for beginning a work in us. Teach us, Lord, to participate in the process of growing in Christ's likeness in growing in personal righteousness and holiness. Not that we would boast in ourselves, but that we would boast in you and what you've done in us. And fill us with hope as we see progress being made in our lives. Fill us with hope that we may joyfully look to the day that we'll stand before you and become like you. We know that we don't deserve it. We know that it's only by your grace. So teach us to trust in you. Teach us to look beyond our circumstances when they're hard and our trials when they're hard and see your ultimate purposes behind it all. That you would be glorified in our lives as we become more and more like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.